Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain, where each episode we'll sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, and industry veterans to discuss innovation, technology, and the most exciting opportunities in trucking and logistics as we build the future of supply chain together. Be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Now, let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, welcome back to the Future of Supply Chain. Uh, super excited to have Russ Felix here, uh, co-founder, CEO of Slope. Hey, Russ, how you doing, man? Great to have you. Santosh, it is fantastic to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, joining us from uh, the lovely coastal waters of, uh, of the Gulf, is that right? That is correct, where uh, fall weather is always hot and humid. <laughs> so I'm I'm really excited to uh have you on today cuz when we think about supply chain we might just always default to things like trucking, warehousing, planning, but if we actually think about the vertical needs in and around supply chain, you've actually tapped into one that many overlook, clinical trials. So you know, would would love to actually just start with what was your personal journey to get to slope? What did that look like? Well, it's actually pretty interesting because my background, I've got uh, undergraduate in mechanical engineering and a minor in mathematics and then a master's degree in mechanical engineering. And my thesis was on the effect of selective catalytic reduction in biomass co-firing and power plants. And so here I am now leading a, <laughs> uh, a clinical clinical trial supply chain startup. And it, it for me, it actually all started with the supply chain. Uh, my brother, Michael, and I, we had a business prior to Slope where we developed some predictive forecasting algorithms um, specifically for e-commerce that operated very similarly to the way uh, a technical analysis worked for the stock market. And that kind of got our hands in to the supply chain and understanding the concept of um, you've got products, those products are being sold by retailers, those retailers are buying those products from wholesale vendors. Um, you've got all sorts of different elements like uh, product favorability, uh, you've got you know uh, consumption trends, you know seasonality, and that's kind of really where we got started and kind of our education. And then from that, I had a, a family member who worked in the clinical trial industry, and they were extremely interested in using some of our um, algorithms to help solve issues that they were having with um, supply distribution to clinical research sites. And, you know, fast forward a few years, and, and here we are now, we are currently the only company on the planet focused on fixing the clinical trial supply chain. And it, it has some pretty significant problems. So when we're talking about clinical trials, we've likely heard about clinical trials because of commercials, advertisements, maybe a loved one uh, is, is currently going through one. But what, what exactly is a clinical trial? Just to level set uh, the, the knowledge amongst our listeners. 
So uh, at a very high level, a clinical trial is a process that a drug or a device goes through um, to see how effective it is. Um, clinical trials can have multiple phases where they typically start with a very small handful of people. And then as everyone grows more comfortable with the drug or device, the population size that's being tested on that increases. Um, from an industry size standpoint, right now there's about 80,000 active clinical trials. We're talking everything from dietary studies to hypnosis studies to oncology immunotherapy studies. Um, there, there are a lot of trials, and the industry is about a $65 billion a year industry. This is a, a, a huge uh, function that, that, in effect, keeps us safe as, as consumers of, of healthcare products when certain new compounds and, and solutions are, are developed by um, be it pharmaceuticals, medical devices, biotech companies. But, you know, where does logistics fit into uh, all of this? You know, when, when you're talking about logistics, like, is it just the fact that there's a compound that's, that's transferred or, or a device is transferred? Um, help, help us understand kind of just how hairy this thing really is. So what's, what's interesting about your observation is it's about safety. And it's about protecting the safety of the participants. It's about protecting the safety of the participants' um, private health information. Um, it's about the, uh, the safety of the future population that are going to be trying this drug or device. And because of that, this is a very regulatory-laden industry um, driven by SOPs, FDA regulations, audits, process, process, process. And what happens in industries like those, which I'm, you know, I, I imagine that we probably see in other ancillary supply chain um, industries, there's not a lot of innovation because with regulatory burden, it's kind of a choke point for innovation to some extent. So you end up having people that have always done things a particular way because that particular way has always led to the lowest you know, risk exposure from their standpoint. So um, the clinical trial supply chain runs on spreadsheets and sticky notes for the most part. And that, that to me was one of the biggest surprises that we found when we started kind of doing in or digging in and doing a lot of discovery. And um, so kind of going in, you're, you're walking into uh, rooms that have sticky notes, some mismanaged spreadsheets. Um, it's, it's effectively utter chaos, right? And why yeah, have things been able to go on like this for so long, especially when we're talking about healthcare? <laughs> well, <laughs> what, what's really interesting is there, when we talk about the clinical trial supply chain, let's think about the stakeholders first. So you've got the trial sponsor, which is either a, a device company or a, a drug company, molecules uh, company, and then you've got oftentimes a CRO, which is uh, an organization, contract research organization that, that manages 
the trial of it as if it was a project. And then you've got study sites where the places where patients visit to um, you know, be analyzed and participate in the clinical trial. And then you've got uh, monitors and CRAs who are kind of the, you can kind of almost think about them as the sales reps to some extent, where they are assigned different study sites and they're running around and visiting them and making sure everything is in compliance. And so then in addition to that, you've got the materials that are sent to a study site to facilitate the process of clinical research. So now we're talking about study drugs, talking about the devices, lab kits, um, specimen shippers, specialized uh, medical equipment, you know, EKGs, um, you know, head restraints. Um, then from there, you, you kind of get into the, the concept of you have specimens that you're needing to track and they're being associated with specific freezers. And there's just a lot of assets and elements that come into play and make it really, really complex. So to, to address your question, how does everything run on sticky notes and spreadsheets? Well, in my experience, it's because of FedEx overnight deliveries. Um, mm. it's, it's very common behavior for um, there, someone who's managing the research um, and interfacing with the patient that the title of that person would be a clinical research coordinator. It's very common for them to check their supply closet or the pharmacy a day or two in advance of a patient visit because they are, you know, all day long they're doing data entry, they're talking to patients, they're addressing regulatory requirements, they're, responder, they're responding to, um, you know, inquiries from their monitors. It is a frantic, high-touch job, and it just, everything kind of always waits to the last minute. So it's extremely common for a clinical research coordinator to check their supply closet at pharmacy day or two before a patient visit, discover that they either don't have what they need or they do have what they need and it's expired. And because of that, you have this last minute triage between all of the stakeholders, you know, rushing something from point A to point B to ensure that it gets to the study site in advance of the actual patient visit. Yeah. So, um, Basically, we need to thank uh, Fred Smith for his fleet of aircraft and amazing last mile delivery networks. <laughs> I mean, if it if it wasn't for that, most most of the clinical trial supply chain would fall over. I mean, I've I have worked with sponsors who are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in just FedEx overnight freight alone to triage these type of situations. And what's, what's really interesting is because this industry is run with spreadsheets and sticky notes, you end up with like this kind of, I call it like Goldilocks and the, and the three bears. Um, yeah. You either have way too little or you have way too much, and it's very rare to have just enough. Um, so we actually ran an uh, extensive survey, a global survey of study sites, earlier this year to try to map and better understand the extent. And so it's interesting because simultaneously 
80% of study sites are overloaded with excess trial inventory, while 77% routinely experience outages that impact their patients. And it's kind of mind-boggling to think about the fact that you can have too much and too little at the same time, but when you really look at the portfolio of assets that are used in a clinical trial, you know, and the, the solutions that the industry is trying to implement, um, then I can kind of go into some detail on, on why these numbers happen. So let's start with the 80% of sites are overloaded with too much trial inventory. Um, a solution that trial sponsors have implemented is called auto ship where they're not necessarily balancing the amount of supplies that the site needs with the number of sites that a patient has, or number of um, patients that the study site has. So they will automatically ship clinical supplies on a schedule to a study site, whether that study site needs them or not. And, yeah. you know, we're talking about things that, uh, you know, medical equipment, you know, needles and syringes, um, hazardous things that you can't just necessarily throw away in a trash can. You know, the sites have to follow kind of the trail and receive them and store them and monitor them. And I have visited plenty of study sites and have seen supply closets overflowing with lab kits. I've seen lab kits shoved in desk drawers. Um, I have seen janitor's closets taken over for specimen shipper box storage. I mean, it's, it's absolutely insane. And then to kind of go into the, the outages, um, the 77% of, of, of study sites routinely experience outages. Why, now, why is that happening? If we're getting overages, why are we having, having uh, not enough? And it's the same reason Sponsors don't have insight and visibility into what's happening at a study site from a clinical asset standpoint. And yeah. because they don't have this, they're using all sorts of Monte Carlo analyses to try to you know, forecast production and distribution. And you have huge swings of enrollment periods. Like you might have some study sites who think they're gonna enroll 10 patients, but they only enroll three. And then you have other study yeah. sites that think they're gonna enroll three patients and they enroll 15. And because sponsors don't have visibility, distribution problems happen. And so sites are simultaneously overfed and starving. It is, it is absolutely fascinating to, uh, to actually watch it happen. So in a complex environment, there have been a, a variety of attempts to solve this, but none have really uh, been able to do that. So where does Slope fit in? Where's Slope uh, operating or, or, or what are uh, you doing at Slope that's solving all of this and, and kind of reducing that, that waste and being able to tie supply and demand um, closer together? So what, what's interesting is you bring up the concept of waste, and this was actually something that we ran across very early on, is when we were talking to study sites, they were extremely concerned about waste. But you go and you talk to a sponsor, sponsors don't really care about waste. 
you know, you look at how expansive a clinical trial budget is and saving half a million dollars on lab kit overages or freight is not actually a huge concern. And so before I kind of get into slope and how we fit in the picture, I want to kind of chat about this weird perception disconnect between the study sites and the sponsors. So yeah. if you're not, if the sites aren't getting what they need, they have certain problems that sponsors are not necessarily aware of. And if, you know, the, the sponsors are kind of operating in a vacuum, they're having, um, you know, they're being exposed to risk and problems that the study site's not necessarily aware of. So the big issue that we see is because there's no tools, study sites don't have a way to manage their clinical trial inventory that prevents outages. You know, that, like I said, it's mostly sticky, sheet, or sticky notes and spreadsheets. So this lack of tooling, this lack of standardized workflows, it's going to expose the study sites to inventory outages, and these outages have three main impacts. It's going to hurt enrollment because if they don't have what they need, they can't enroll a patient. Um, same thing with retention. If they have an on-trial patient and they don't have what they need, that patient's not going to be able to get the care that they need, and that's going to introduce risk in the form of a protocol deviation, which is never something that you want to hear. You get too many of those, and the FDA comes knocking. And then, most importantly, it's going to delay the research, where if you have an ineffective clinical trial supply chain that's feeding study sites, and they're not getting what they need, the entire trial network is going to suffer. And so then, let's look at the sponsor side. So if sponsors don't have visibility into what's happening at sites with their clinical trial assets, that is going to impact production. And you look at a lot of clinical trials and, you know, these boutique drugs that they're testing are incredibly expensive and oftentimes have very short lifespans. And you have to kind of get production kicked up in advance of demand. Um, and then on top of that, you've got monitoring assets. Uh, a lot of these devices are extremely expensive. And, you know, these device sponsors are tracking the serial numbers and where they sent stuff and spreadsheets that are emailed around and lost. And then lastly, you've got consumption tracking. Um, sites don't really have a way, a unified platform where they can associate a particular clinical trial asset was used with this particular patient. Um, so sponsors lose a lot of visibility. So kind of stepping back, what we realized is you have two sides. You've got the side that is dictating and managing the research, which is the sponsor and CRO. And then you've got the people that are actually doing the magic of clinical research. These are the study sites. They both have unique problems, and those problems have unique consequences. And they're both sides are pretty immune to an understanding of the other side's problems. So that was kind of our, our first big aha moment is you can't go in with a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, you first of all have to build something that balances 
the needs of both sides of the equation. And unlike most software vendors in the clinical trial space, we decided to focus on study sites first and then clinical trial sponsors. Whereas most people, the sponsors have the big dollars, they wanna go after the sponsors first, then they push their software solution down to the sites that makes the sites unhappy and you get data compliance issues. So what we decided to do instead was build an inventory management platform that allowed a study site to record and manage all of their clinical trial assets, supplies, and inventory across all of their trials and do it in a way that worked with their clinical research you know, workflows that they feel comfortable with. And what you do with that is you're fixing the problem of spreadsheets and sticky notes, and then you're providing them a platform that addresses their concerns but most importantly, creates this very valuable data stream, which is real-time stock levels for all of your different study drugs and lab kits. So that's it's such a, a it, it's it's such a simplistic idea, right? That you know what you have or don't have at each site, but still so hard to get. Yeah, yeah, really, really, it's. It is astounding to me, the disconnect, and, but like how easily it can be fixed. You give sites a tool that helps them manage their inventory, which then provides real-time inventory levels that you can then take and share with the trial sponsor um, through you know, analytics and dashboards and exception reports and alerts that helps the sponsor address their problems. But you know, the, it, our our biggest uh, our biggest aha moment was understanding that the study site is the point of truth for the clinical trial supply chain. Everything comes from the study site. And you know, with the visibility that you have, you're able to streamline uh, operations. There's clearly the the impact where. You're not being as wasteful, but you did mention how you know that's not as top of mind. But what what is getting impacted, and what is the degree of of improvement when you use slope versus not using slope? That's a uh, that's a very good question, and I think probably the best way to answer that with data is by looking at the usability of the software by the study site staff. You know, it's very common for us to run a demo for a study site. They're just, they want it bad because it, it fixes their problem. Then they immediately load all of their trials in the software and all of their assets. And then they begin living in the software, you know, staying logged in, you know, running slope on their mobile phones when they're with a patient, and then when they're at their desk, you know, running reports. Um, our, our study site users are passionately adamant how positive of an impact slope has had in their clinical research. And that's exactly what you're looking for, right? This, this rapid support from a grassroots level that can ultimately power the entire system to be better off. 
Right. But but it is an uphill battle to some extent because we are the only people doing this. And, you know, their study sites compete with each other. Um, and there are industry yeah. associations. But, you know, slope is a strategic advantage for a study site. Um, and so we're growing through lots of, you know, aggressive tuned outreach um you know and through just a little word of mouth but our biggest thing is letting the people that do the clinical research at the study sites know that we exist and that we are markedly improved um over the way that they're currently running their inventory control so so dig into um the uh the challenges associated with selling into an industry like healthcare, right? The, the incentives uh, are not necessarily the same across various stakeholders. Uh, they do tend to have longer cycles. Uh, there are pockets uh, of opportunity that actually probably aren't pockets. There are these huge oceans of opportunity like uh, both you and Michael have, uh, have come into. How, how do you go about putting a startup product into this machine another very very good question <laughs> and you know i'm not i'm not gonna lie that's one that we are constantly um working on and tuning and what we do is we listen i have never spent so much time listening to people and then taking their feedback and looking at trends and then, you know, pushing that into our strategic decisions and software decisions. You know, when we first got started, um, you know, for me, like most people, I was very ambitious and thought that we could do this with just a small um, seed raise. But, you know, the the advice that I got is, you know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing why it was given to me. It takes a long time. So you have to be able to exist and survive um, while you are an evangelist for what you're doing. But the thing yeah. that's really interesting that we've seen is you tell someone about slope and how quickly they adopt it and how quickly they load all of their clinical trials into it. And so for us, it's just, it's this overcoming the inertia of awareness and doing things that are not normally done from a from a marketing standpoint um you know weird study sites are not necessarily used to having people trying to sell things to them that solve their problems um you know we could use that to our advantage you know we could use marketing strategies that might be extremely commonplace in another SaaS vertical um, but they're pretty unique and novel and get people's attention. So we're just, yeah. we're coming from the standpoint of being the biggest advocates that we possibly can for the sites um, and kind of, you know, hoping that everyone follows in our wake because of that. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's, that's great advice around listening and then also realizing that certain um distribution channels that maybe we take for granted uh, are actually very uh, advantaged depending on on the industry or, or subsector you play in but along this theme of 
company building uh, that we're on. Uh, one of the, the really interesting things about Slope as well is that you're a remote team. How are you managing as CEO um, across various locations and different pockets of talent? What is it like uh, managing a remote team? Because that's something that we're seeing more and more of um, over the last couple of years. Well, I think the the re you ask yourself why would you run a remote team? And the reason is access to talent um, and access, quite frankly, to cost-effective talent. You know, I could not be doing what we're doing um, if our entire team was based out of San Fran because we just don't have the capital, the support capital for that. Um, give you kind of an interesting story. Uh, just through luck, we were at a, a conference and uh, talked to an attendee whose brother was uh, looking for a job as a developer. Just so happened his area of expertise completely aligned with our current need. Um, but the thing was, he was a night owl. So he gets up about two or three o'clock in the afternoon and he gets to work about eight o'clock or so. And he works until, you know, the time when I'm waking up in the morning and then he goes to bed and um, he was frustrated because, you know, he did not necessarily want to change, um, change his, his behaviors. Um, and so we, struck a deal with him you know he he lives in um, jackson mississippi and so we gave him flexibility in exchange he gives us visibility into what he's doing and because we were able to check his boxes he's able to check our boxes and we have just we've got a tremendous development asset in him and i think that you know you carry that through you know every role that you need to feel the fill in a startup and you have a lot more access to talent if you're not location dependent but you're right that does it gets very hairy when it comes to implementing a solution that gives you the ceo what you need to do to be able to do your job effectively so i've had plenty of terrible bosses in the past and the one thing that I wanted to avoid was micromanaging, you know, the feeling of someone leaning yeah. over your shoulder. You know, there's a lot, there's SaaS solutions now where you can, you know, your remote employee logs on in the morning and broadcast a constant screen share of their work. And that is the exact opposite of the kind of culture that I want. So I want something yeah. that is based upon results not the tasks and the tools that achieve those results but also a system that empathizes with the individual and sets them up with for success you know by you know looking at the boundaries that they need in order to be successful so we've done a couple things um the first thing is daily stand-ups um we we kind of live in slack so we use a bot called Standuply that allows people to report their standups on a daily basis. So it's shared with the entire team and their managers can watch 
the stand-up reports and, you know, kind of intuit when they need to step in with resources or advice or guidance. And then along with that, we've created a meeting structure that is not oppressive. Um, Because I I think meetings for the sake of meetings um, are not necessarily helpful. I look at meetings as more of an opportunity to see what impediments exist to someone achieving their goals. So we we've finally tuned and finally crafted our meetings and agendas so that we're getting exactly what we need and we're not tying up people's time, you know, with just inane status reports. But it it is a constant challenge. Um, you know, as we grow and add, you know, new employees, there come new challenges. But I would much rather be doing this than um, than having everyone in one location, having to trudge into the office every day. Sure. Yeah. No, that uh, is super thoughtful. So wrapping up here, uh, we've we've gone through uh, an understanding of you know the the clinical trial industry, how logistics intersects it, the the way uh, current habits and existing solutions haven't addressed uh, the, this massive problem. And ultimately, where slope is solving the problem. Um, but as you look at, at healthcare broadly, a, as a sector, as an industry, where else might there be opportunity for logistics technology? Um, and it, it, it's such a unique business to be in, where it's not only driven by expense, right? It, it is very much a how do we uphold patient care, satisfaction, safety. Does this exist elsewhere in uh, healthcare? Are there, you know, entrepreneurs sitting in their dorm room who should be, you know, cued in on the intersection of healthcare and and supply chain and build a business around it? Uh, I I would say yes if they are patient. Um, the one thing that I struggle with the most is the fact that I like to go really really fast, and it's difficult to go really really fast in the healthcare environment simply because of the massive regulatory nature um, of the business. Um, I kind of have two ideas here. Uh, One of them kind of plays off of a a call I had with a a company yesterday. They were doing a liquid tumor assay and it involves taking a tumor biopsy and then it, it goes to a lab and they get some results and then they get their fancy AI and machine learning to look at stuff and there's a diagnosis. And they had done an amazing job on the actual software uh, and the analysis. But what was missing was the understanding of the impact of the supply chain and how tenuous their service quality level was if they did not execute flawlessly. So my first idea, um, because I I don't want to do this, but I love to see it done, is a fulfillment by Amazon approach, which allows um, people that are bootstrapping um, in biotech and are sending assets from one place to another, you know, not just in a clinical trial scenario, but, you know, you've got blood tests millions and millions of blood tests going all over the globe right now for just regular standard of care procedures. 
an FBA approach that allows a bootstrap biotech company to essentially outsource their supply chain to a trusted party who provides the same level of oversight and service quality as Amazon FBA does. Um, you know, there are three PLs that kind of, sort of, kind of do that. And there's drug depots that kind of, sort of, kind of do that, but not with the service quality uh, API integration that you get from like a, a, a Amazon FBA. So that's, um, that's my big one. Um, I think my other idea that I also don't want to work on just because of the expansiveness of it is we run into a really big problem um, in healthcare with data harmonization. You've got all sorts of patient data living in different EMRs, um, electronical, electronic medical records um, all over. So, you know, you might have a primary care physician and that primary care physician is entering all of your health data into the EMR, and then you go on vacation and you have a heart attack, and the the hospital where you're sent to uh, after your heart attack does not have access to that EMR data immediately. And you have the same issue with supply chain um, harmonization. I think it would be amazing if you could have something like a Zapier-style service that allowed you just plug and play, drop in flexibility with um, electronic medical records and the supply chain functions that that rely upon really good data to make sure that the proper things are always at the proper places at the right times. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Uh, I especially like the data harmonization problem and it, it exists across a lot of industries but um if you're a founder looking to tackle either give me a shout but with that russ great having you on here uh you're able to cut through uh a, a lot of noise or uh rather a lack of information and understanding as to how logistics works uh in healthcare and, and specifically clinical trials um, and, and really um, appreciate your your wisdom here when it comes to dealing with a, uh, a long sales cycle as well as managing teams because we live in a world where talent is everything. So appreciative uh, of uh, of your time and um, really think uh, our our listeners here have uh, have a whole lot to dig into further once we jump off. <laughs> Fantastic. And thank you for giving me your platform to share my opinions. I appreciate that, too, Flash. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.